Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father covers paragraphs 1322 to 1419, What is the Eucharist? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! There's a lot of material, and in fact, out of all of the sacraments, this is the one that um, is the longest. And there's a reason for that. Um, over the last couple weeks, the Catechism has made reference to that reason. And that is that all of the sacraments point to the Eucharist. All of the sacraments point to the Eucharist. Paragraph 1322 and 1323 function as a summary. I know that there is someone who frequently asks me what's the one paragraph that should be read in the whole section. And I would say 1323 is the the one paragraph to read. That's sort of the summary of, of everything. A couple points in 1322, or at least one important point in this intro section, is we're reminded that the, Euchar- that the Eucharist completes Christian initiation. And so, starting off, the Catechism wants to connect the Eucharist to baptism and confirmation. The Catechism reminds us that in baptism, we are anointed, we are raised to the dignity of Christ's royal priesthood. In confirmation, we are configured more deeply to Christ to participate in the church. And so, therefore, these two sacraments set up our full final initiation through the Eucharist in that we are able to participate in the Lord and the community's very own sacrifice. So the connection between the Eucharist and baptism and confirmation is that baptism and confirmation do something to us that enables us to participate in the very sacrifice of Christ, which is also, because it's Christ's sacrifice, it's also the church's sacrifice. So there are four, make it actually six, Six, seven Roman numerals that divide this section up. Roman numeral one reminds us, and this is a teaching of the Second Vatican Council. It's a it's a phrase taken right from the the Council's document on the Eucharist, and that is that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, the source and summit of the Christian life. So in the first, these next four paragraphs under the Eucharist, the source and summit of ecclesial life, we're told and reminded of the importance of the Eucharist and why all the other sacraments kind of point to it. It says, this paragraph first tells us, that the Eucharist serves as the point, the source of unity in the life of the church. 
so that all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolates are bound together with the other sacraments as well by the Eucharist and oriented or directed towards it. So everything that we do in the church points to the Eucharist, finds its effectiveness in the Eucharist, and flows from the Eucharist. So that we can say that really, um, you know, you think of, I don't know if any of you watch Star Wars, probably not. Um, There are no nerds here. Um, But there is this Death Star that they keep building or rebuilding in the Star Wars series. And the Death Star has this core that's like its source of energy that really holds the whole thing together. That really is the Eucharist for the church. It's our source of energy, and it's the point that holds everything together. The Eucharist is also the source and summit of ecclesial life because it enables not just our union as the church, but our union with God. The Eucharist is the efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life. The next, third, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our life because it ensures a union with our future, with our destiny, with heaven. It's already a share. It's already a union with heaven. The next paragraph, 1327, references St. Irenaeus, which we mentioned St. Irenaeus when we covered the first part of the catechism. Irenaeus was this figure from um, the second century AD, so around the 100s. He was born in the late 100s. He dies in the 200s. Irenaeus was taught by a man who was taught by John the Apostle. So he's only two generations from the Apostles. Um, Irenaeus was a crucial figure when we talked about the church, when we talked about um, Our Lady, when we talked about Christ's divinity, all of these different points. Well, he's also an important writer when it comes to the Eucharist. And the Catechism says, quotes St. Irenaeus, Our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. Really, um, the Catechism is saying, we might say that this is a fourth union which comes from the Eucharist, and that is a union of belief. All that we believe is somehow held together in points to the Eucharist. This is why, really, faith and belief in the Eucharist and in the real presence is so important. And we have to, our understanding of the Mass and our understanding of the Eucharist is crucial. It really, in some ways, although I wouldn't use the word determines, it somehow reveals the authenticity of everything else that we believe. 
and also kind of holds it together, just like it does the life of the church. As the catechism does, it then, after kind of giving the importance of the sacrament, then points to the name of the sacrament. What do we call this particular sacrament? Well, as I can best count, there are 12 names for this sacrament, 12 names for this sacrament. First, we call it the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word Eucharistain, which means to give thanks, and eulogain, or eulogain, if you want to hit the gamma hard, um, which means a blessing or a praise. It is a reminder that, and this is, I think, where people get confused in this section. So I'm going to just stop and make this clear. When we talk about the Eucharist, we mean simultaneously two things. What we do on Sunday morning, which we usually call the Mass, and what we receive at the Mass, namely the Blessed Sacrament, we sometimes call that, or, um, you know, the, um, um, the Eucharistic species. Sometimes we could say it's communion, whatever. So it's both the act of worship and then what is what remains or what we receive. This is unique in, in all of the sacraments. Um, you know, in baptism, we call the rite the rite of baptism. But what we receive, we say the graces of baptism. Or we describe those particular graces. But because the Eucharist does something which none of the other sacraments does, which is makes Christ most fully present in the world, we really hit also upon this great effect of the sacrament. Namely, his presence, his real presence. So that needs to be clarified, because I think sometimes when we hear the word Eucharist, especially in reference to the catechism, we might think just of Jesus present in the tabernacle, which is true. That word applies to Jesus present in the tabernacle. It also applies to the act of worship through which and in which Christ becomes present, namely the Mass. It may not seem that big, but we always have to kind of, when someone uses the word Eucharist, we have to stop and find out how they're using it. So this word Eucharist means thanksgiving or blessing. And it is during the Mass that we give thanks to the Lord for all that he has done and we praise him for his works, his works of creation, of redemption and sanctification. So that's name number one is Eucharist. Name number two is the Lord's Supper, 
which reminds us that this sacrament was instituted the night before Jesus died at the Last Supper. But even more importantly, we use the name Lord's Supper because it is a very share in the eternal feast of heaven. So the Mass is a supper, not so much because it was instituted at the Last Supper, because it, the Last Supper is the Mass. The, last su- the Mass is not a reenactment of the Last Supper. The Last Supper is the first Mass. We call the Mass the Lord's Supper not because, so much because, it is a reenactment of the Last Supper, because it's not a reenactment of the Last Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper because it's ultimately a share in the eternal feast of Christ in heaven. This is a point we'll hit on a little bit, but this is a common error in the Catholic Church, at least in a certain generation of catechists and religion teachers, and even, I would dare say, priests. So the Mass does not, does not, N-O-T, does not make present the Last Supper. The Mass makes present the mystery of Good Friday, the crucifixion. Somehow mysteriously, the night before Christ's passion, he mysteriously makes it present so that the apostles can receive with open hearts, the graces that he will, that he wins for them. So the Mass is not a reenactment of the Last Supper. Number three, we call it the breaking of bread. This is a name that was very commonly used in the New Testament. We see this in, especially in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 2.42, Acts 2.46... Acts 27, Acts 20.11. Paul also, I think, makes reference to it, generally speaking, in 1 Corinthians 10 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Why do we call it the breaking of the breads? Well, that's the ritual action that he uses. He takes the bread and broke it. So whenever we hear Jesus breaking bread, and there are a couple times in the Gospels where he breaks bread, it is pointing towards the Eucharist. So the classic example is the multiplication of the loaves. He breaks bread, and all of those depictions, all of the descriptions of that miracle and of those miracles, he breaks the bread. It points to the Eucharist. But the early church at the time of the Acts of the Apostles refers to this sacrament as the breaking of the bread. And so using this name reminds us that the church was doing this from the very beginning. So important was the command of Christ to celebrate the Eucharist 
that from the very beginning they knew they needed to do it. The fourth name, as we sometimes call it, the Eucharistic assembly, or we'll use this word, which means the, it's sort of from the Greek, synaxis, synaxis. S-Y-N-A-X-I-S, synaxis. It's because at the Mass, the church in heaven, on earth, and in purgatory are gathered together. Number five, we call it the memorial. Why? Well, this memorial is a special word taken from the Jewish understanding, especially of the celebration of Passover. A memorial is a ritual celebration which makes present the mystery, that it, the event that it points to. And so this is a memorial, the Mass is a memorial of the passion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means it's not an event that just reminds us that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. It is through this ritual action that his death and resurrection, those mysterious events become present here and now. We're made present at them at the Mass, at the Eucharist. Number six we call this sacrament the Holy Sacrifice because at the Mass, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is made present. And because of the Church's union with Christ, she is also, we are also able to offer, to unite our sacrifices to Christ. Number seven, we call this the holy and divine liturgy because it is the supreme form of our worship, of our cooperation in the work on behalf of God's people. Number eight, we call it the sacred mysteries because it is at the Mass that those mysteries, those events of Christ's life, especially the Paschal mystery, are made present. Or we are made present as they happen. Number nine, we call this sacrament the most blessed sacrament because it is the sacrament of the sacraments. All of the sacraments point to it. We specifically or especially use this name to refer to the Eucharistic species the Eucharistic species, especially present in the tabernacle, the Blessed Sacrament. 1331, we call it Holy Communion, for by it we share and are brought into communion with Christ and to his church. It is a sign of our communion by receiving the Eucharist. It is a sign of our communion with the church our full communion, that we really form a single body as the church. Number 11, we call it holy things or bread of angels because it is the food of the saints and the, the angels worship before it. 
It's also referred to as viaticum, paragraph 1331. Viaticum means food for the journey. The Eucharist can mean food for the journey, viaticum, in the sense that we all need it in order to live our vocation. But it especially is used by that term when we receive it for the last time before death. And then finally, we call this sacrament the Holy Mass, or Misa, as the Latin is, from which, from whence we get this English word Mass. Misa comes from the very last words of the Mass in Latin, Ita Misa Est, it is, it is over, you are sent. It is a reminder that by this sacrament we are sent forth. We are enabled to live our life as disciples of Christ and witnesses of his good news. So those are all the names. I actually think I lost count and there's really 14 names. Maybe 15. Then we move to Roman numeral three, the Eucharist in the economy of salvation. So with all of the sacraments, after the catechism goes through the name for these sacraments, the catechism then will talk about its place in the economy of salvation. If you remember, which you should by now because I've repeated it now, this is the third time, but... A sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So this is the point where the catechism elaborates on how the sacrament was instituted. By first placing it within the context of the Old Testament. So, at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration is the matter of bread and wine. Bread and wine is used. So, whenever in the Old Testament bread and wine, or bread or wine, are mentioned, you can bet that it's pointing to the sacrament of the Eucharist. So, bread and wine are offered by the priest Melchizedek, that Abraham runs into in this, this little settlement called Salem. Bread and, bread and wine were offered in the Mosaic sacrifices as part of the first fruits of the earth, which was a sacrifice offered in thanksgiving to the Lord for his creation, for his work. We know that before, the night before they were delivered, they were freed from Egypt. Before the Exodus, the people celebrated the Passover feast with unleavened bread. And they continue to celebrate that feast. And each year as they celebrate that feast, they are mysteriously, or they believe that they are mysteriously brought back to that night, to that day where they are delivered from Egypt. Of course, on that journey, they also eat bread, that manna, that bread from heaven. 
Part of the Passover celebration was a cup of blessing at the end. Scott Hahn, um, in his book on the Eucharist, I think it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. I haven't read it in over a decade, I'm sure. Um, is a very good book on um, kind of breaking down, especially the Passover feast and how it points to the Eucharist. The Catechism, and this is, um, it's somewhat interesting, at least to, you know, to me it's somewhat interesting. The Catechism even points to events in Christ's public ministry, not as institutions of the sacrament of the Eucharist, but as something pointing to the sacrament of the Eucharist. And, he ta- and the Catechism talks about the miracles of the multiplication of the loaves as a typology, as something pointing towards the institution of the Eucharist. And also the wedding feast of Cana, where the water is changed into wine, as again pointing towards the Eucharist. And then in 1336, probably the most important point in Christ's public ministry, where he points towards the Eucharist, is John chapter 6. In that, of course, he tells um, those listening, I think it's in Capernaum, in the synagogue in Capernaum, that they must eat his body and drink his blood in order to have everlasting life. And many walk away from that. But Christ nonetheless does not relent. This is literally what he wants them to do, to eat his body and drink his blood. Then in 1337 through 1340, the Catechism talks about when was this sacrament instituted by Christ. He instituted, first of all, the Eucharist as the memorial of his death and resurrection and commanded his apostles to celebrate it until he returned. He did that the night before his passion. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and St. Paul and his writings, all talk about how the Eucharist was instituted the night before his death, and how the Lord mandated, told the apostles, do this in memory of me. 1340, by celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal. So the Last Supper is part, partly, or at least takes place within a Passover meal. Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning that Jesus would pass by his death to new life, the new Passover. 1341 through 1344 continues this teaching on the institution. We're reminded that Christ does not only ask us to remember Jesus and what he did. That command, do this in memory of me, is not just, don't forget me. I'm getting ready to leave you, don't forget me. 
he is commanding them to do a rite, a ritual, a liturgical action, which points to memory. What Christ is doing is he's establishing a memorial ritual, an action by which when his apostles or those who are going to believe because of the apostles, when they do it, as he has instructed them to do it, the mysteries, the events are made present. We see in the Acts of the Apostles that they understood this to be a command to do this ritual action. As I said earlier, throughout the Acts, they would gather to break the bread. Most especially, they would gather to break the bread on the first day of the week on Sunday. Then in 1344, kind of wrapping up this section on the institution of the sacrament, we're reminded of the two dimensions or two facets of the Mass. On the one hand, it makes present the cross, the way of the cross. It makes present the Paschal Mysteries. Second, while at the same time making present heaven itself. So that's what happens at the Mass. We are, in a sense, I'm able to transcend time and to be at the point where Christ dies for us, where he sacrifices himself for us on the cross, while simultaneously being drawn up into heaven, being present in heaven. This dimension, this facet of the cross, of being present at the cross, of the sacri- it points to the sacrificial nature of the Mass, The point of being drawn up into heaven to the eternal banquet points to the meal understanding. So the Mass is both simultaneously the same. A transportation to the cross and a transportation to the eternal feast of heaven. Before the Catechism tackles those two things, and it will, it will go, it will flesh those out, no pun intended, it will flesh out those two, um, those two points, it first wants to go through the rite of the Mass, the R-I-T-E, or the outward sign of the Mass. If we recall, every sacrament has an outward sign. It goes through the structure of the Mass, which in in many ways is a review probably for all of us because we've been through the Mass. And so the Catechism does a quick run through the Mass. But it begins with an important important quote and a very long quote from St. Justin Martyr. St. Justin Martyr... um, lived in the first half of the 100s. It appears as if he wrote this letter to an um, emperor, Antonius Pius, 
in um, 155 AD. So this quote is from 155 AD. It's in paragraph 1345. It's worth reading. I'm not going to read it all, but he basically describes the Mass. He refers to it as the Eucharist. He describes the Mass, the structure of the Mass, essentially as what we have it now. This is 155 A.D. This is how Christians are supposed to worship. This is their worship. That's what Justin is describing. This is when we gather together on Sunday, Justin says, the day of Christ's resurrection, the day of the new creation. This is what we do. Essentially, it entails a gathering a listening to the word, the liturgy of the word, as we call it, with a reading, with homilies, with general intercessions, and a liturgy of the Eucharist, in which the gifts of bread and wine are brought forward, even a collection. Justin talks about a collection. So in 155 AD, the church was in need of money even back then. Um... So the second part is this, the presentation of the gifts, um, a consecratory thanksgiving prayer, and then the reception of communion. We talk about the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist as if they are one liturgy, one single act of worship. So the catechism, as I said, really breaks the Mass into ten parts. The gathering together in which there is a presider, either a bishop or a priest, who acts in the person of Christ the head, in persona Christi Capitis. Second, there's a liturgy of the Word, which includes readings from the Old Testament, the letters, and the Gospels. There is the presentation of the offerings, which includes in 1351 a collection. And then, over the the next, what I would say... um, Five points, the Catechism dissects what we call the Eucharistic prayer, or what we often call the Eucharistic prayer. It uses this word called the anaphora, anaphora, A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A, anaphora, which is that long prayer that happens. It really starts, um, you know, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. That dialogue is the beginning of what is called the anaphora. The anaphora. The anaphora begins with what is called the preface. So after the priest does that dialogue with the people, he then goes into this this prayer. And he breaks, and we of course sing the holy, holy, holy. If you're familiar with that, the Sanctus, as it's sometimes called. 
That preface is a bit of thanksgiving and praise for the work of creation, redemption, and sanctification. It leads into what we more formally call the Eucharistic prayer. So after the Holy, Holy, Holy is finished, it goes then into the Eucharistic prayer. In all of the Eucharistic prayers, there is first, or at least early on, what is called the epiclesis. Epiclesis. E-P-I-C-L-E-S-I-S. Epiclesis which is a formal invocation of the Holy Spirit that by the power of the Holy Spirit the bread and the wine might be changed into the body and blood of Christ. The priest usually, he has to, at least in the Latin rite, extend his hands over the bread and the wine as he says the epiclesis. In those good churches that have bells, Um, Attentive servers will ring the bell once when the priest does that. Next, shortly after the epiclesis, we have what is called the institution narrative. The words of consecration, we sometimes call that. In which the priest repeats, speaking on behalf of Christ in the person of Christ, He says those words which Christ said at the Last Supper when at that first Mass Christ changed the bread and the wine into his very body and blood, soul and divinity for the very first time. So it's called the institution narrative. The power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit make sacramentally present under the species of bread and wine Christ's body and blood, his sacrifice offered on the cross once for all. It is at that moment that we are standing before the cross. That's why churches are supposed to have a crucifix on the altar as a reminder that at those very words of institution, We are at the cross, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, with John and Mary standing at the cross. um, After those words, the priest will say the, the memorial acclamation, and then we go into what is called the anamnesis, the anamnesis. You know it's the anamnesis if there's a couple priests that are concelebrating the Mass, At the anamnesis, those other priests have to keep their hands elevated. In the anamnesis, the church calls to mind that we are made present at the passion, the resurrection, and the glorious return of Jesus Christ. After the anamnesis are intercessions built into that prayer, so we pray for the church, often for the pope and for the bishop. And then we're also mindful of those who have died. Those who are are with us in heaven and those who are with us in purgatory. And then finally, we receive communion. After having gone through the rite, the catechism then in 1356 focuses on the 
sacrificial nature of the Mass. It is a ma- it is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of memorial by which the mystery of Christ's very own sacrifice is made present, and a sacrifice in which Christ continues to be present in the in the Blessed Sacrament. So this section thirteen fifty six, focusing on that sacrificial nature of the Mass talks about how it's a memorial and how um, the real presence comes about. Because we are united to Christ, um, we also share in this sacrifice with him. It is, first of all, his sacrifice. It is not our own, because it is, first of all, the sacrifice of the cross. But because of our union with him, we are able to unite our sacrifices to his. So first of all, it is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of praise, for all of the work of creation, for the work of our redemption, and for the work of our sanctification, of our growing in holiness, of the graces that we receive. And it really is not just Christ's sacrifice. You know, he hands himself over in thanksgiving to the Father. That is part of the sacrifice of the cross. When we think of Christ on the crucifix, and it might give us something more to meditate on, when we think of the crucifixion, we think of him sacrificing himself for our sins, joining in our suffering. But we should also think of the cross as his sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Father. And so the church joins in in that sacrifice of Christ in thanksgiving to the Father, especially in the thanksgiving that we pour forth in the Mass and in the praise that we give to the Father. Because the crucifixion, in addition to being a sacrifice of of thanksgiving, It's also a sacrifice of praise to the Father. Then the sacrificial memorial of the Mass. We've talked about an anamnesis or a memorial. How this, by this ritual action, we are made present at the very event of our salvation, of Christ's sacrifice. In the sense of sacred scripture, 1363 tells us, in the sense of sacred scripture, the memorial is not merely the recollection of past events, but the proclamation of the mighty works wrought by God for men. In the liturgical celebration of these events, they become in a certain way present and real. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, the memorial of Christ's Passover, his very sacrifice for us becomes present. We see that this is a sacrifice in the very words that Jesus used in the institution. Take my body which is given for you, or my cup of my blood which is poured out for many. 
The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present. It's not represents, it's makes present, represents, presents continually the sacrifice of the cross. Because it is its memorial and because it applies its fruit. So, the reason why the Mass is so important is not so that we can get in the time machine and go back to what it was like at the cross. But more importantly, it's so that the fruits of the cross can be applied to us personally. So Mary and John and Mary Magdalene and a few other women were bold and courageous and fortunate enough to stand at the cross and say yes and receive what Christ was offering them, namely a sacrifice on their behalf. The rest of the human race did not have that luxury, but in the Eucharist they now have that luxury. We're able to stand at the cross and say, yes, I accept the fruits of what you're doing for me. The sacrifice of Christ is, and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, they are one single sacrifice. But the Eucharist is also a sacrifice of the church because of our union with Christ. Our particular sacrifices which includes the offering of bread and wine and that painful collection that we have to take or give. But in addition, our praise, our sufferings, our prayer, and our work, these are all wrapped up as our sacrifice, our particular sacrifice. But because of our union with Christ and because of our presence at the Mass, They are Christ's sacrifice, Christ's one sacrifice. These paragraphs are important not just because they give us some doctrinal knowledge on on the Mass, some way to articulate our belief in the Eucharist contrary to other people's belief. I think the most important part is that it gives us a practical way to prepare for the celebration of Mass. That if I go in knowing what's going, on, going to happen, that makes it more fruitful. If I'm, if I'm reminded of what I'm going to, it makes it more fruitful, what I'm going to go through. And then, especially in this part, paragraph 1368, if I'm reminded what my contribution, what my share is in Christ's sacrifice then I can bring those things intentionally to the Mass. So if my work week has been horrible, if my back has ached, if I have a lot that I am grateful for and thankful for and reason to praise, the prayer, all of the prayer that I have been doing this week, I can bring those to the Mass. They all point to the Mass and they are all able to share in Christ's one sacrifice. So this makes more fruitful meditation. 
And in this sense, also the whole church is united with the offering and the intercession of Christ. We know that all of the church is made present at the Mass. At every single Mass, the whole church is made present. Because at the Mass, we are mysteriously in communion with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. We invoke his name and we pray for him. We know, and paragraph 1369 reminds us, that even if we're at a parish church 90 miles away from where the bishop might be, if we're at Mass, the bishop is at that Mass, mysteriously. You can't escape Bishop Brennan. People think that he's all over the place. Well, in the Diocese of Columbus, if you're at Mass, he's always there mysteriously through the person of the priest who's celebrating the Mass. You can't escape him. He's going to find you. But then also all of the saints are somehow gathered with us, are gathered with us, all the angels, all of our departed loved ones who are in purgatory are gathered with us. Then the catechism um, proceeds by reminding us of the presence of Christ. That, you know, Christ is present in many different ways, and he tells us that he's present in many different ways. When we hear his word, the scriptures, he's present in the people that we encounter, especially the sick and the poor and the marginalized and the imprisoned. He's present in those other sacraments. But he is present most especially in the Eucharistic species. That's why we call it the real presence. It's not to say that he's not present in other ways. He's present in perfection. In a unique way. The mode of Christ's presence on the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. The whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained in the Eucharist. The presence of Christ is called real by which is not intended to exclude those others, but because he is present in the fullest sense, that is to say, in a substantial presence, by which Christ, God and man, makes himself holy and entirely present. That is, when, when we come face to face with the Eucharist, with the Blessed Sacrament, It is our God that is Jesus Christ, fully present, entirely present, wholly present in his humanity and his divinity. Paragraphs 1376 and 1377 remind us, although they do not use the word transubstantiation, which is an inter- interesting, 1376 and 1377. They don't use the word transubstantiation, but they describe what happens. Namely, that the substance 
of bread is turned into the substance of Christ's body, and the substance of wine is turned into the substance of his blood. Actually, it does say that. Excuse me, I missed it. It's the very last sentence of the paragraph. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. The Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. We render worship to the Blessed Sacrament. We we worship him. He is our God. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration. Not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in procession. You know, I don't know if anyone is listening here, but if you hear this and this applies to you, then, um, then it, you know, this is the voice of the Lord speaking to you. If you're a Eucharistic minister and you say, well, I got the wine this week or I've got the bread this week, you need to stop doing that. It is the body and blood of Christ after consecration. And you can refer to it as the body and blood of Christ. 1379, we hear about the tabernacle, how it is um, there for the reservation of the Eucharist in a worthy place. Originally, it was reserved to be brought to the sick, to those who could not make it to Mass. But also, as, as the Church's understanding of this great mystery deepened, we reserve the Blessed Sacrament so that we can have this time of adoration and prayer to manifest the truth of the real presence of Christ. We're reminded that it is fitting that Jesus Christ has left us this presence, his presence in the world, that he instituted this, and that he did it within the context of the Mass. You know, the Mass as the sacrifice by which the very presence of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is made present is a fitting way by which Christ's presence will therefore retain, remain in the life of the Church. In his Eucharistic presence, he remains mysteriously in our midst as the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, and he remains under the signs that express and communicate this love. The fact that it's in the sacrifice of the Mass that, we, that his presence remains with us is fitting because it reveals his great love, that heart that was pierced for our sake. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.